0: You're listening to The McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. Hello and welcome to this edition of The McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we're going to be taking stock of the global financial system. Ten years on from the tumultuous events of September 2008 – and the financial crisis that followed. As we'll hear, a lot has changed in the decades since the crisis. But is the global financial system actually more secure? Could history repeat itself? And where might we look for the seeds of the next crisis? To answer these questions, today's guest is Susan Lund. Susan is a McKinsey partner and also an economist with the McKinsey Global Institute. She's based in Washington, D.C., Susan is among the co-authors of a new discussion paper on the topics we'll be covering today. So if you want more detail, facts, figures, charts, and so on, go to McKinsey.com. You can download it from there. In the meantime, Susan, thanks so much for joining today. Thank you. So I think we should start with a little bit of history, if you don't mind, Susan. What were the origins of the financial crisis? Where was the epicenter? How did it happen?
1: The epicenter of the global financial crisis was really the housing market. It started in the United States, but it turned out that similar housing bubbles were building in other countries, like the United Kingdom, Spain, and Ireland. So households were borrowing more than they could afford. Banks were giving out loans at very low interest rates and increasingly having enticing features like interest rates that were very low but then ballooned after a year or two. So this meant that households could borrow more then they could really afford to borrow and buy a bigger house. At the same time, all of this was fueling housing price increases. So banks looked at the credit risk and thought, well, it's fine. These houses are worth a lot, so they have an asset. But the problem started when housing prices stopped growing and instead started declining. And suddenly, a lot of households found that they had a lot of debt, sometimes more than the value of the house. Um, And then the economy fell into a recession, and people lost their jobs, so they couldn't afford these very large mortgages. Now, that in and of itself would have been painful, but what made the 2008 financial crisis so globally devastating was that it turns out there were a lot of complex, opaque derivative securities that had been built on top of these underlying mortgage assets. So- The subprime mortgage market in the U.S. was pretty small. It was really not more than maybe 10% of all U.S. mortgages. Yet banks had taken these mortgages, pulled them together, created something called asset-backed securities. Then they took those and pulled them together again. And so they built trillions and trillions of dollars of financial instruments whose value was riding on those mortgages being repaid. So when a few households started defaulting on mortgages, the pain went far beyond those households and the banks that originated them, but to all these investors around the world. And those global systemic links uh, weren't really apparent until the crisis hit and we saw banks and investors around the world start getting hit with losses.
0: So the obvious question for a a microeconomist would be, well, where were the regulators in all of this?
1: Well, regulators were there, but, you know, banks were creating new types of financial instruments and they were gaining popularity. These so-called collateralized debt obligations hadn't really been seen before and credit default swaps. And these derivatives um, are great in theory, and they're often great in practice. But what was happening was they were creating these systemic risks that the world hadn't seen before. As it started to unravel, we found out that those risks, rather than being diversified and spread around the world, were concentrated in some very large banks like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. At the same time, I have to say, banks had very little capital. So they were in a position, and they were following global regulations at the time, but they didn't have a lot of equity capital to withstand large amounts of losses on their balance sheet. So when large numbers of mortgages started to go into default, they were facing losses that really pushed them into a solvency crisis. That, too, is something that's changed over the last 10 years.
0: So with the benefit of hindsight, we could say okay, we start with a housing market bubble that goes bad. Uh, That's happened before. But what made this different is that there was a lot of financial innovation that had had run ahead of regulation and to some extent actually had run ahead of the bank's ability to manage the risks. Plus, there just wasn't enough capital. The, The shock absorbers weren't there in the global financial system.
1: Absolutely. That is a great summary.
0: But From a macro point of view, Something that was discussed a lot at the time was the whole question of global financial imbalances. You know, with the benefit of hindsight, again, what was going on?
1: Well, global financial imbalances refer to the fact that some countries save a lot and invest less, and other countries invest a lot and save very little. So the U.S. is an example of a country that was investing a lot in real estate But its own saving rate was actually going down, down, down. So to finance a lot of the investment that was occurring, foreigners were putting money into the U.S. market. Ben Bernanke coined a term called the global savings glut, and he was referring to the fact that China and some other Asian countries had very, very high savings rates. And one of the things they did with all this surplus saving was channel it into the U.S. Treasury market. That's because the U.S. Treasury market is the biggest, the largest, most liquid, safe asset in the world. And that had the effect of pushing down U.S. interest rates. So while the housing crisis was a building up, you saw very large inflows of foreign money into the U.S. Often it started in the treasury market, but then that pushed down interest rates and liquidity worked its way through the system and financed it to some extent this housing bubble. In that sense, I think that surplus global liquidity combined with an interconnected global financial system did play a role in setting the conditions for this massive housing bubble.
0: I mean, I guess the the big question then is from a layperson's perspective. Could it happen again? Could we get a repeat uh, of, of that same pattern of a real estate bubble fueling a banking crisis and that spreading across the world?
1: Well, history shows us that real estate bubbles and banking crises go hand in hand and have plagued countries throughout history. So I would never say that it couldn't happen again. But a lot has changed over the last 10 years First of all, you see that the households that had borrowed too much prior to the crisis, like households in the US, Ireland, Spain, the UK, have really cut down on debt a lot. That said, one of the most surprising things over the last 10 years is that the total amount of debt in the world has actually continued to grow. So global debt over the last 10 years went from roughly twice the size of global GDP to today it's about 2.4 times global GDP. In absolute terms, the world has $72 trillion more debt than there was back in 2007 on the eve of the crisis. Government debt has grown very rapidly in advanced economies. Uh, Globally, government debt has more than doubled. There's now $60 trillion owed by governments around the world. A lot of this came from advanced economies. So the combination of a recession that reduced tax revenues and increased social welfare payments for unemployment really put a big dent in government fiscal balances. And around the world, governments to one extent or another provided financial support to the banking system and other critical industries. So all of that has made governments more indebted than ever before. But at the same time, companies have borrowed almost as much um, in addition as governments have. Globally, non-financial corporate debt has grown to even larger than sovereign debt, to $66 trillion. About two-thirds of the growth from that comes from developing countries. And here, China stands out in particular. So Chinese companies alone have added $15 trillion of debt over the last 10 years. This means that the country now has one of the highest corporate debt ratios in the world. But China's not alone. There are other pockets of corporate borrowing, ranging from Turkey to Chile to Vietnam. It's a particular problem in these developing countries, I want to note, when the debt is in U.S. dollars or euros or other foreign currencies, because it means that these companies face a risk. If their own domestic currency, such as the Turkish lira today, depreciates, it means that repaying that foreign currency debt is much more expensive, and the likelihood of default goes way up.
0: Just complete the picture. Tell us a little more about household borrowing. So, yes, uh, U.S. households have taken on this mortgage debt. We've seen similar patterns uh, in the other countries that were at the epicenter of, of the 2008 crisis. Well, what is the pattern of, of household borrowing globally? Is there less household debt than there used to be, or is there also more?
1: Globally, household debt has also continued to grow since 2007, but the picture really varies by country, and it's grown a lot less uh, than corporate debt or government debt. Households in what I think of as the core crisis countries of the U.S., U.K., Spain, and Ireland have all reduced household debt quite significantly. But the same pattern hasn't held in other countries that weren't as heavily affected. So, for instance, households in Canada have seen household debt continue to grow and real estate prices have continued to rise quite rapidly. Today, household Canadian debt is much higher than it was in the U.S. at the peak. Switzerland has very high household debt, as does South Korea. Australia has an extraordinarily high household debt level. And there are also some... Developing countries where households have borrowed quite a lot over the last 10 years, this would include Thailand and Malaysia and China today, the household debt when measured against household income, not GDP but household income, is actually similar to the U.S. level today. So it's possible for there to be future crises or banking problems involving mortgage debt and household debt Even though the U.S. mortgage debt picture looks good, it's very clear that 10 years on, U.S. households and individuals still are struggling, and many are not financially well. So in the U.S., you see that student debt to fund post-secondary education has exploded, and it's now at about a trillion and a half dollars outstanding. So that's even more than credit card debt in the U.S., that's quite worrisome for the future because student loans cannot be defaulted on. And so you're seeing young people with large student loan burdens not purchasing houses, not purchasing cars, delaying big expenditures. So that, that has a significant impact on overall economic growth. And at the same time, there are other metrics like a, a significant share of U.S. households you know, don't have enough savings to Pay for even an unexpected expense of four hundred dollars in any given month, and they would need to borrow money to do so.
0: Yeah, and I think the point you make there about the U.S. underlines for me that you know a lot of pain was taken by households, not only in the U.S. but in a lot of countries in the aftermath of the financial crisis, and in a lot of countries it's still being worked through. Right?
1: Absolutely right, Simon. When you look at Greece, for example, today, as we record this, is actually the day that Greece is formally out of its bailout package financially. But Greek households have been left a lot poorer. Average wages in Greece are down by about 20 percent. Unemployment remains high. Taxes have gone uh, way up. There's still the sense that even while the economy recovers, households are much poorer The same would be true in Spain, where the economy has grown quite strongly, but real wages have actually gone down quite substantially, and youth unemployment in particular remains high. So, in some sense, this global financial crisis, even as we're on the 10th anniversary and we look at all the ways that the financial system is more stable, it's important to remember that the individual losses and consequences of this crisis have still not been worked through.
0: So we've, we've talked a lot so far about the uh, borrowers, but who's doing the lending? Uh, and is, is the global banking system actually you know more secure, more stable than it was going into the crisis?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there are two parts to the answer to that. So banks are definitely more stable and secure. For one thing, they now hold a lot more capital. So for US and European banks, the average tier one capital ratio has risen from about 4% of their assets before the crisis to 15% today. And the biggest systemically important financial institutions actually hold even more capital than that. In addition, banks have been subject to a whole host of different new regulations, and they have reduced the risk on their balance sheet and off their balance sheet in terms of the assets that they hold and the activities like proprietary trading that they engage in. At the same time, though, you see that banks are doing a lot less cross-border lending. So overall, one of the things that's been most notable um, in the last 10 years is that the global financial system is somewhat less interconnected than it was. When you look at the average just amounts of money crossing borders, it's shrunk by about half uh, since 2007. And banks are the biggest part of this shrinking. So they have sold foreign assets. They've exited doing business in some other foreign markets. This has been seen very clearly in Europe, but is also true to some extent of the largest U.S. banks, For instance, before the crisis, two-thirds of the assets of German banks would have been outside of Germany. And today now that's been cut by half, so it's about a third of German banking assets are outside of Germany. So that gives you some sense of this massive restructuring of how banks are doing business. But at the same time that they've become more capitalized and with less trading risk, one of the things we've seen is that they're not terribly profitable. The banking industry had very high returns up until the global financial crisis. And metrics like return on equity have been cut by more than half. Many banks are not even earning their cost of capital. And when you look at their growth prospects, investors are taking a pretty dim view on how fast these institutions will be able to grow. Common metric is the price-to-book ratio. And for A large number of banks in Europe, Japan, this ratio is less than one, meaning investors are valuing the bank at less than the book value of if they just sold off all their assets today. So banks are continuing to try to find a way to be profitable in this new environment with more capital and more liquid assets. And that's obviously a problem for banks and their shareholders, but it's also a systemic problem for all of us because one of the temptations might be to start to engage in riskier uh, but higher return type activities that led to the crisis 10 years ago.
0: Another development since the financial crisis, and this one is, is very close to my heart, because what you don't know is that my very first job was writing about the eurobond market. The corporate bond market has tripled in size since the global financial crisis.
1: Yeah, that's right. Over the last 10 years, as banks have sought to repair their balance sheets after sustaining huge losses. They've really retrenched from lending, especially to corporations. And companies, at least the largest companies, have instead turned to corporate bond markets. Prior to the crisis, the U.S. had a very large and liquid corporate bond market. And the same could be said of maybe the U.K. and South Korea. But in Europe, and Japan, and really the rest of the world companies turn to the largest banks for commercial loans. Over the last 10 years as global banks have retrenched, companies have in fact turned to bond markets outside the United States. And so you've seen tripling in the size of corporate bonds outstanding. And this is a good thing in terms of uh, systemic risk because it means that companies are diversifying their sources of financing, and we think that there's lots more room for sustainable growth.
0: What about the financial imbalances, the global savings glut and uh, and all that? We talked about it 10 years ago. Have those things kind of resolved themselves, or are there still stresses and strains?
1: Yes, a lot of the global financial imbalances have, in fact, subsided. So that's been another very positive development over the last 10 years. On the eve of the crisis, China had the world's largest current account surplus, meaning it was giving its savings to the world and it was worth nearly 10% of GDP in 2007. That's down to just one, uh, roughly a percent and a half of GDP most recently. And then on the borrower side, the U.S. was the world's largest borrower receiving capital flows, and its current account deficit was nearly 6% of GDP, and that's now down to about 2.5% of GDP. So these imbalances have subsided to a large extent. Now, That's not to say that some countries aren't running large current account deficits or surpluses. Germany has been called out by the IMF and others for now maintaining a very large current account surplus. Um, And then there are some emerging markets that remain on the deficit side, for instance, like Turkey and Argentina, that could make them vulnerable. As we said earlier, I would never say never, but a lot of the potential risk in global imbalances does seem to have subsided.
0: So this all sounds uh, very positive. You know, the big global financial imbalances have, you know, largely resolved themselves. Banks are better capitalized. Corporate bond markets have grown up. All sounds very good. Is there anything that we should worry about?
1: One thing that we know is that the next crisis probably won't be the same as the last crisis. So we've done very well in responding to the last crisis and battening down the hatch and creating a stronger financial system to guard against those risks. It's hard to foresee what the next crisis might be, but there are a couple of things I think worth looking at. First would be corporate debt, especially in emerging markets, and this would be both loans and bonds. This is particularly true for foreign currency denominated loans, which are now their trillions of dollars of worth. As the U.S dollar strengthens as interest rates rise. And if countries come under a fire like Turkey is, as we record this, a lot of those debts could be unsustainable. Secondly, I would continue to monitor the global landscape for real estate bubbles and mortgage risk. Canada, Australia, South Korea, Thailand, There are a whole host of countries, I would put China in this bucket, that have had continued growth in housing prices, continued growth in household borrowing through mortgages. So that's a potential risk. In the U.S., now roughly half of all new mortgages are coming from non-bank lenders. So it's not the same shadow banking entities that we saw before the crisis, but it still bears watching. And then the third big potential area of risk, I would have to say, would be China's rapid growth in debt. So over the last 10 years, China's debt in absolute terms has more than quadrupled in size. They've added more than $21 trillion of debt. They went from being basically on par with other developing countries for their level of debt to now being at or higher than the level of economies like the U.S., Canada, and Germany. And one thing we know from financial crises around the world is that whenever you see rapid growth in credit, there's a high likelihood that uh, lending standards have fallen and that credit underwriting is not as strict as, as it should have been. Um, and so there is a potential risk in China's debt. A lot of it is related to real estate. So if the real estate market were to go into reverse, that could produce defaults. Um, there have also been a lot of local government entities that have borrowed to fund low return infrastructure and social housing projects. So that's another potential risk. That said, I would not say that any of these risks are as globally systemically important as what we saw in the situation before the 2008 financial crisis. So even in China where they've added a lot of debt, most of it is, has been lent by Chinese lenders. Uh, so you don't see this, the international linkages in any crisis there. And the Chinese government has plenty of capacity to bail out the financial system because its central government debt is quite low.
0: What about financial innovation? We hear a lot about fintech. And then, of course, there are cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and all the rest of it. So yeah, financial innovation clearly played something of a role in the emergence of the 2008 crisis, are there things out there that we should worry about?
1: Well, it's a, it's a very interesting point that, yes, financial innovation at some point was at the heart of the last crisis and created the globally systemic risks that we saw. And it's unknowable today how some of the new innovations in financial technology would play out. So for instance, cryptocurrencies, we could clearly see that in some cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, there may be a bit of an asset bubble uh, that could create volatility. But there are real questions about how central bank monetary policy plays out in a world with digital currencies, and is it less effective than it used to be? There are also market risks coming from high-speed algorithmic trading. So we've seen some stock market flash crashes and bond market and currency flash crashes as computer-generated trading very quickly makes a turn and creates incredible market volatility. We also are starting to see the rise of new technologies like blockchain that would enable potentially huge efficiencies in financial transactions, but also are decentralized. So I think one area to watch as we go forward is how the move towards a world of digital finance, digital payments, robotic, artificial intelligence-driven trading and financial markets, how those impact market dynamics, and also just the ability of policymakers and central banks To be effective as a set monetary policy.
0: Yes, I guess all of that falls into the bucket of known unknowns, doesn't it? We know that it's out there, but it's pretty hard to judge at this point what the impacts are going to be. Another one that falls into that bucket, I guess, is is also good old geopolitics, Um, whether it's you know, armed conflict or trade wars.
1: That's right. And in recent McKinsey quarterly surveys of executives around the world, one of the notable things over the last few years has been the consistency at which business leaders put geopolitical risk as higher than it's ever been. There's just a lot of uncertainty in different regions of the world about political and military conflicts, potentially. And now there's also uncertainty about the global trading system and whether the 30 years of an increasingly liberalized, quote unquote, free global trading system is going to be significantly changed and curtailed going forward. And all of that could affect financial markets as it affects real economy flows and production and investment in ways that are very hard for us to foresee right now.
0: Well, I think we're out of time for today. uh, But Susan Lund, thanks so much for joining.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for tuning in. To learn more about this topic, and indeed to learn more about the work of the McKinsey Global Institute overall, please go to mckinsey.com backslash M-G-I. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Twitter and Facebook.